0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Katie Collarn and I'm based at Florida International University in Miami, Florida. And I have the great pleasure to be here today with Chelsea Shields who is the author of Offshore Attachments, Oil and Intimacy in the Caribbean, released from the University of California Press last year. Uh, Chelsea Shields is an associate professor of history at the University of California, Irvine. Thank you so much for being here today, Chelsea. Thank you for having me. So usually what I like to start off my interviews with is just kind of asking a little bit of an origin story of the work. So um, if you don't mind, could you tell us a bit about how this work came to be? As well as um, as this is a region that, in in the realm of of the Caribbean, is uh, usually one that gets not as much interest. Um, how did you first get interested in the Caribbean and the Dutch Caribbean in particular?
0: Yeah, so when I speak with my students about where <laughs> projects begin, I I tell them that. Often they're born from a kind of disappointed expectation, um, a, a disappointed sense of what one hoped to find, and I think that that's absolutely true for me. So I have to kind of go way, way back in time to explain this. But um, a origin story for this project, my own interest lies in my political awakening as a young person who was engaged in the the protests against the US invasion of Iraq in 2003. And so right as I was coming into political consciousness about the reality of U.S. empire, I had uh, an opportunity to actually be a high school exchange student in the Netherlands, which I knew absolutely nothing about. I knew nothing about Dutch history. I naively believed that that country would be miraculously free of imperial dynamics. Um, Like I said, I had a really wrong idea about Dutch history, Um, And once I was there, I, of course, learned that the Netherlands, you know, was still an empire because the six insular territories in the Caribbean, Curacao and Aruba, which certainly loom large in the book, but also Bonaire, um, St. Martin, St. Eustatius, and Ceiba uh, are all, albeit in in various ways, still under Dutch sovereignty to this very day. Um, And so... Furthermore, I came to appreciate that it was also in the Caribbean where US and Dutch empire overlapped and not least because of the importance of the oil industry, which was uh, supported by US companies as well. And that's the subject of the book. Um, And that story felt really familiar to me because this is part of my own family history. I had a grandfather who left the US to sell kerosene in China and ended up spending his whole career uh, working for oil companies overseas. And so growing up with those stories, it was very clear to me how, how race and class were made across the world's mineral frontiers. And, and that's, of course, a, a central story in the book as well.
1: That is a truly fascinating origin story. So thank you so much for sharing that. Um, that's a very unique one um, compared to other ones I've heard for other works. I'm, I'm really intrigued. <laughs> So uh, going on to um, the meat of the book, obviously, the major themes of this book, um, as you've alluded to recent just now are obviously, you know, um, sexuality and gender roles and how competing transnational forces came to influence them. So for my next question for you is, um, if you could to please tell us a little bit about how these transnational forces, specifically the metropole government in the Netherlands, the Catholic Church, and the international oil companies influenced ideas of moral sexual practice and family structures.
0: So the book charts really how the boom and bust of the oil refining industry in Aruba and Curacao relied upon contested interventions into race and sex, spanning the opening of the Shell and Standard Oil of New Jersey-owned oil refineries in the early 20th century, through to their sale and shuttering uh, in the 1980s. And so though this story centers largely in the Caribbean and in the the European Dutch metropole, these were islands colonized by the Dutch in the 17th century, and as I said, they remain under Dutch sovereignty today, Like many Caribbean histories, as you know, this is necessarily a global story, too, because the extensive array, I mean, the vast amount of petroleum and petrochemical products that are produced in these islands travel all across the world. So it wasn't really enough for me to talk about oil companies though they themselves are supremely transnational actors uh, because oil companies really had to work through local and colonial governments and they also had to contend with other powerful actors that had profound social reach like the catholic church which is dominant on aruba and Curacao. so the book captures how these actors didn't always agree about how to regulate intimate life for the island's inhabitants and a growing number of migrant workers in the oil industry. Uh, but crucially, these actors do agree that controlling intimacy is fundamental for advancing goals that, that really had little to do with satisfying people's inner desires or notions of self-making. I mean, it, it, it has nothing to do about actually like fulfilling people's sense of what uh, constitutes the good life. Rather, Oil companies believed that what people did in the bedroom was actually vital to their profits. And meanwhile, the colonial government in Aruba and Curacao thought that uh, managing intimacy was really key for disciplining Caribbean subjects at a moment of tremendous political change. That's a kind of common Caribbean story and some people within the catholic church felt that reforming intimate life would also help to prove their own relevance in a society that was undergoing really swift industrialization so the book takes intimacy as this kind of crucial or indispensable window into understanding the dynamics of fossil capital and imperial power Uh, and and just as importantly i think it shows how intimacy stood at the center of Caribbean people's efforts to challenge and negotiate with those institutions. So it it kind of looks equally at the bottom up dynamics as well.
1: It's truly fascinating. And um, obviously, a big part of kind of the overall coloniality, the, the, in my opinion, probably the central um, theme of the book is um, just the idea of imposition. And, you know, I kept thinking about uh, the idea of like, you know, foreign actors coming in and kind of imposing things that are not from the place and obvious and most of the time don't really make a lot of sense which brought me back to actually ford langia by historian greg grandin a bit mm-hmm. about henry ford's town in the amazon so yep. um yes definitely in good company there um, yeah, a lot of resonance for sure yes so uh moving on um obviously as you've as you've alluded to the work is Um, centered around the oil industry and specifically two oil refineries, the Isla refinery in Curacao and the Lago refinery in Aruba. Could you tell us a bit about the history of these two refineries and the archival sources you utilize to research them? Yes, happily. I mean, interestingly,
0: virtually everyone In the Caribbean, has heard of these places because many people have family histories that connect to these enterprises. They were extremely attractive destinations for migrant workers from all over the region and Latin America. Um, But interestingly, many US American and European readers are often surprised to learn about these refineries, despite the fact that most of what is produced and processed on Aruba and Curacao actually comes back to the global north, it comes to the US uh, and to Europe. And also despite the fact that these were actually the largest refineries in the world by 1940. Um, And so that's kind of an astonishing fact that that few people outside of the region know. And I think that that has a lot to do with the the fact that as energy scholars point out, we often assume that oil just kind of like pours out of the ground and is already valuable and already has this inherent worth. But actually, it requires process in refineries to turn it into the many products that we rely upon today. And so I can't overstate enough the importance of the refineries on Aruba and Curacao for for making the fossil fuel, for generating these products that we really take for granted today. Uh, The plants on Aruba and Curacao were some of the very first that were built in the region to process foreign crude. The crude is coming not from their own reserves, which don't exist, but from Venezuela, which is just 30 miles to the south. And following the success of these um, refineries, a whole raft of export-oriented plants will eventually be built across the Caribbean after World War II. So these enterprises really help to consolidate Uh, the the rising global importance of two highly consequential energy companies, the Royal Dutch Shell Group on Curacao, um, and the plant that they built there was their largest and most profitable in the Western Hemisphere. And the Standard Oil Company of New Jersey, um, which was established on Aruba. So Shell leases the land on which the Isla refinery is built in 1915. And Aruba's refinery develops a little bit later. Standard Oil acquires a what was a pretty small refinery and transshipment site um, on Aruba in 1932 and expands it enormously over the following years. So like I said, by 1940, these refineries are some of the largest uh, anywhere in the world. Aruba had the largest throughput of any global refinery and Curacao was just behind that of Aruba and the Abaddon refinery in Iran. So these are immensely important sites for launching the hydrocarbon age after World War II. And, and actually during World War II, they supplied just a staggering 80% of the Allies aviation fuel. So we could say that these plants directly participated in the liberation of, of Europe from fascism. So part of the point of the book is simply to say, you know, as many people in the Caribbean already know that oil has a really important Caribbean history. And telling that history relied on a kind of curious mix of sources. Corporations are pretty guarded about the information that they release. Shell is uh, very much guarded with their historical materials, but public records actually overflow with materials related to the industry uh, because it dominated the insular economy until um, the sale of that refinery in 1985. And because the industry provided You know, at one point at its height, full male employment, and because the culture of the company town that was built around that plant was so strong, there are all kinds of shell related documents like employee publications that can be found across various repositories on the island. And similarly, U.S. American oil workers and their families on Aruba uh, left lots of scrapbooks, personal effects, and actually even some corporate documentation. Um, so they constituted their own archive, which really helped me to fill in some of the holes in ExxonMobil's own historical record. ExxonMobil is um, what Standard Oil. Uh, ExxonMobil is the, the company that we now um
1: Um, While centered on two islands in the former Netherlands Antilles, there are many actors in this story that are not originally from Aruba or Curaçao. Could you tell us a bit about the transnational migration to Aruba and Curaçao and its purposes at the height of the oil refining industry? And how are transnational actors interacting with each other in this era? So one recurring
0: trope that you see in Shell and Standard Oil's materials are that, um, is the fact that they often really boasted about how these companies created a microcosm of the world on these Caribbean islands. They drew people from dozens of different countries and nationalities to societies that, uh, as you know, were already cosmopolitan because the Caribbean is the birthplace of maternity. (laughs) Uh, but, But oil companies attracted migrant workers not because they valued... Cosmopolitanism or diversity, uh, rather, this was a, a labor practice that helped them to strengthen their bottom line, and it was a common practice not just in the Caribbean but in, in sites of extraction all of, over the world. So it bears stating that that oil companies are transnational actors. The entire supply chain of oil was, from the very birth of these refineries, managed transnationally in such a way so as to protect corporate control over profits and resources that are being extracted in foreign countries. So, like I said, the oil is actually coming from the sovereign Republic of Venezuela, but companies like Shell and Standard Oil uh, were worried that the demands of workers there uh, could imperil their access to energy. And so they thought it was safer to establish refineries You know, oil workers are notoriously militant in Dutch colonies where there would be colonial oversight and control and also where they could operate through the protections of Dutch sovereignty to get things like advantageous, advantageous tax breaks and lax labor regulations So for this reason, I found the framework of the offshore to be a really useful one. Uh, Broadly speaking, this is a term that denotes a space of of minimal or exceptional oversight in the production of profit. And it has this like very seductive imagery that comes with it of, you know, billionaires hanging out on a lone island or some distant oil rig operating beyond the bounds of regulatory capitalism. Uh, But as, as anthropologists, And geographers before me have said, and and increasingly a growing number of historians, that the offshore is not at all removed from the onshore, contrary to what those images might suggest. Rather, it's more accurate to say that global capitalism relies upon these zones of apparent exceptionality in order to keep growing. And so I saw that to be the case, not just in the regulation of labor or the environment, uh, but also in the regulation of sex. So at the height of the oil industry, running roughly from the 1930s to the 1950s, uh, oil companies created a a two-tiered workforce with white U.S. and European chemists and engineers and managers. These are the so-called skilled workers um, at the top and production workers of color who were often migrant workers from across the region, but also um, local men uh, at the bottom of this hierarchy. And those distinctions were created by managing sex in really different ways. So just one example is that white elites from the United States and Europe were encouraged to marry to really consolidate their claims to elite status and respectability. They Their families were um, brought over free of charge. They were paid in foreign currency. They were provided nice housing upwind from the refineries' emissions. Their kids went to private schools schools. They enjoyed private beaches. I mean, you name it. The children that grew up in these settings uh, were often, you know, incredibly nostalgic for the lives uh, that they lived in these, these enclaves of luxury. Um, and in part, actually because of their sentimentality, uh, they preserved that history, which is why I found such a rich source base for uh, places like Aruba. Now, meanwhile, the day-to-day and the the value producing work of running the refinery fell to production workers. And on Aruba and Curacao, these men, um, and I should add women too, because domestic workers uh, and sex workers were also recruited with the aid of the colonial government. And I suspect we'll have more to say about that in a moment, but uh, male production workers were recruited from the Caribbean region and Latin America, as well as China and Portugal. And oil companies uh, in Aruba and Curacao, but also globally, imagined this migrant workforce as ideal in many ways. They were thought to be isolated and thus really easily controlled. Uh, They were paid in local currency and compelled to travel without their families. They could be housed in more cheaply constructed and crowded barracks. And no less importantly, those, those people who traveled alone could easily be sent home if they became a political nuisance or if demand for labor decreased with any kind of fluctuation in oil markets. So this was a labor practice that was extremely profitable and ideal um, for companies like Standard Oil and Shell. It was the attempt to create you know, what Marx theorized as the, the reserve army of labor, if you will. And for their intimate and reproductive care, the Dutch colonial government provided access to women's companionship on transactional terms even though the facilitation of sex work was actually explicitly illegal under Dutch colonial law. So that's a classic example of what I term the offshoring of sex. And and it shows how these transnational actors like corporations and the colonial government are interacting to arrange intimacy in ways that, that fundamentally aided profitability.
1: It is really, really, truly fascinating. Um, the account that obviously you've just given in what the reader can expect in the book. It's the space and it's really, I think it's truly characteristic of the Caribbean. It's, you know, you really are forced to rethink things like national boundaries, borders um, um, in the space like the Caribbean. So thank you for that. Mm-hmm. So obviously I think a lot of listeners who, May be familiar with Aruba and Curacao in more recent times, aren't going to immediately think of oil refinery. Uh, Oil refining is a major industry, so this brings me to my next question, which is a climactic point in this narrative um, that you've that you've crafted is the beginning of the eventual downfall of the oil refining industry in Aruba and Curacao. So, since the oil companies themselves had previously played an important role in promoting specific settlement patterns, family structures, and gender roles, how do these phenomena to evolve as these industries gradually die down.
0: Yeah, that's a great question and um Uh, You know, I think to answer that, I have to go back a little bit. So oil companies like Standard Oil and Shell, uh, for all the reasons I just named, uh, often preferred to rely on migrant workers. But as these industries really began to boom, especially during the Second World War, local governments uh, eventually succeeded in pushing them to hire growing numbers of local Aruban and Curacaoan men. And oil companies are always making calculated choices. They they need to maintain good relations in the society where the industry operates. And so they bring these workers on board, but they overlook the fact that industrial labor held few to no immediate advantages for men who had previously known The the seasonal rhythms of agricultural labor and the wages were low. There was little flexibility and autonomy over one's time. Those values are especially vaunted in in the post-slavery Caribbean. So to bring these men into the fold, to try to discipline them to industrial labor, oil companies offer a range of incentives for dedicated employment and motivated by the belief that marriage and domesticated lifestyles would make these men more reliable and more productive and, of course, more reliant upon the wage. So they offer home loans, they offer housing, they offer medical care and pensions to legally wedded spouses, um, which at least temporarily brings an increase in marriages in, in Carousel. And I should say that these um, incentives are really designed for local men. These are people who can't be deported, right? So the thinking on on behalf of oil companies was really to domesticate and to depoliticize them. Um, So people get folded into the culture of the company town, though not necessarily as equals. um, And everywhere they're exposed to a corporate culture that upholds the white middle class That couple and the nuclear household as the marker of status in the industry that is constantly being portrayed to people as the thing that they need to achieve in order to climb in the industry. And that has a really powerful effect on people. Um, And it's not all just false consciousness, right? People did really feel that they were learning valuable skills on the job, that they were contributing to an important industry. And and that's part of why there is a certain sense of nostalgia for the heyday of oil in the Caribbean. Um, But that heyday was incredibly short-lived. So starting in 1950 in Aruba and in 1953 in Curacao, um, oil companies started installing automated technologies to perform important refinery functions. So where once a a human worker might go and regulate the temperature of a still, now that could all be done by a computer in a control room. And so by the end of the decade, employment is really falling off a cliff. And all these social programs that were designed to, you know, put men into the nuclear household and to domesticate and depoliticize them are now disappearing also as a cost-saving measure. Um, and, and quite predictably, because marriage is expensive and it requires ongoing financial commitment to say nothing of its myriad emotional difficulties and disappointments, um, those people who are being cast out of their jobs are, are no longer marrying at the same numbers. And so island elites, especially on Curacao, are anxiously reporting an uptick in uh, births outside of formal marriage. And that was a reproductive practice often associated with the Afro-Curacaoan working class and whose forms of kinship had long been viewed by white elites as as immoral or lacking. So the idea emerges among local um, authorities and physicians That will be common across the so-called developing world in subsequent decades. And that is the idea to regulate sex and reproduction for the betterment of the national economy. This is what Michelle Murphy calls the economization of sex. So this manifests in a family planning campaign uh, run by the white wives of U.S. refinery workers on Aruba and another one run by a local physician on Curacao, but which also received the backing of Shell uh, and numerous local churches and synagogues. These campaigns sometimes had interesting things to say about women's reproductive self-determination, which I tease out in the book. But they also promoted pretty simplistic ideas that reproductive behavior could solve wider structural issues, which, of course, is wrong and had the effect of displacing blame for economic collapse onto individual behaviors.
1: It's super interesting. And I, um, and it reminds me um, your answer about kind of the theme that you talk about in this book that um, is born early on with the oil industry, but never really dies. It just kind of reinvents itself is the idea of overpopulation and overpopulation is something to combat. And that's not unique to Aruba and Curacao. So thank you so much for that. So moving on, Um, movement to the metropole by the Caribbean Dutch people who are Dutch citizens by right plays an important role in shaping views on gender, sexuality and family structure back on the islands. So I was hoping you could tell us a bit about some of the publications and initiatives, uh, which you talk about a lot in the book that arise from these returned Caribbean Dutch citizens in the 1960s and 70s, and how they coexist with the rising labor movement.
0: Yeah, so these were really fascinating materials that I worked with. And, excuse me, the 1960s saw growing student migration as the state, formerly known as the Netherlands Antilles, ultimately tries to cultivate a class of homegrown administrators. So they needed public servants who were highly educated. And because of colonial inequities, the only access to, to higher learning to university education at that point was in the Netherlands And so students were provided, um, some students were provided scholarships, and they can go and study in the Netherlands because after 1948, they are Dutch citizens, and that entailed freedom of movement to the European Dutch metropole. So once in the Netherlands, or return from university study back in Curacao, uh, these young people are highly radicalized by their experiences in Europe. Um, one, because they experience themselves absolutely as outsiders. They encounter racism. Um, Two, because they encounter revolutionary movements from across the colonial world. They meet Surinamese nationalists. They learn about what's going on in Algeria and Vietnam. They learn about the Black Power Movement in the United States. So, um, And then, of course, there are radical student movements unfolding across Dutch universities in the 1960s, too. This is the era of you know, 1968. So all of those things are playing a role in, in, in stoking a um more leftist radical orientation among among these students. Um, so they begin to form groups and to write publications to help achieve um, political education for, for people back in their islands of origin. And one of the first to do this was the group Cambio in the 1960s. Um, this was a group of Uh, Caribbean students still studying in the Netherlands who were critical of Dutch colonialism. They're critical of the dominance of foreign capital, and they're also extremely critical of the Catholic Church. They published in Dutch, uh, speaking mostly to an emerging and educated intellectual circle. Uh, but, But nevertheless, even though their reach won't be quite as large as some other publications, they really do kind of pave the way for this critical milieu. Um, excuse me, another group that takes on a a very important role is known as Vito. And these were returned university students, primarily working as, as school teachers and social workers led by a very charismatic school teacher known as Stanley Brown. Um, this was a mixed gender and mixed race group of young people who, um, didn't just, you know, sit in cafes and figure out, okay, what kind of irreverent and critical article are we going to write about the island's elites or about local business? They also organized protests or happenings um, in one of the main squares in Willemstad. Uh, and they team up with a radicalizing labor movement in Curaçao to try to bridge this perceived gap between the intellectuals um, who are going to university in the Netherlands and the workers, because these groups still see the, the industrial worker as the kind of premier revolutionary actor. But like other new left groups, uh, Vito, especially uh, along with Cambio and and other groups that later form among students in the Netherlands are also saying people, women, uh, same sex desiring people are all oppressed and therefore part of the kind of revolutionary vanguard. And so, and not least because of this group's uh, connection with the labor movement. They actually play a, a large role in the outbreak of labor unrest that that began in 1969 when subcontracted workers at Shell um, organized a work stoppage to demand higher wages, uh, which as they carried their protest into the, the city streets and onto the seat of government, eventually turned into this larger urban revolt. This is the famous 30th of May or 30th di May uprising in 1969. Um, and so Vito did uh, a lot of political education and um, direct action at that moment by distributing uh, materials related to the strike. Now, so these publications feature in my research, not just because, They're they're critical of foreign capital, but also because these leftist groups put sex at the center of their critique. They criticize the emphasis on respectability politics wrought by the church, the colonial and local government, and oil companies. They criticize the racist system of commercial sex work that sought to recruit uh, specifically light-skinned women to Aruba and Curacao, which they regarded as a practice uh, that denigrated the, the beauty of women of color. And they criticized the simplistic ways that the economy was being managed through the emphasis on individual reproductive practice at the expense of like more capacious uh, structural solutions. And so these groups fascinate me because they wrote back in really clever ways to the sexual economy of the oil industry.
1: Thank you so much for that. And I just have to add as a side note, um, and for the readers, there's a lot of obviously, as you mentioned, names that are going to sound like Spanish, and that's the Papiamento, obviously. So I just, I love that because obviously I know zero Dutch. So I just want to point that out for all of our potential readers. <laughs> so um, I'm very excited to ask you this next question um, based on my own interests. The role of the Cuban Revolution is a crucial part of chapter four of this book. So I'd love to hear you tell us a little bit more about the role that the Cuban Revolution of 1959 played in the ideology of this younger set of progressive intellectuals, um, especially in Curaçao, many of whom had studied in the Netherlands. How much did this group adhere to and deviate from the Cuban Revolution regarding views on sexuality and gender roles?
0: Yeah, and feel free to chime in because you you are the expert. Um, so within the history of sexuality, there's uh, often this assumption that progressivism moves from global north to global south, but that really doesn't capture the extent and the impact of these South-South exchanges, especially in this era of anti-imperial radicalism. So leftist groups in Curacao and in the diaspora in the Netherlands are Certainly learning from and adapting lessons from new left groups in Europe, but they're also looking a lot closer to home, especially from Cuba, as you said. And interestingly, one of the issues that they come back to with tremendous consistency is the revolutionary government stance on commercial sex work, which Fidel Castro claimed to have eliminated in 1966, as, as other historians like Rachel Henson and Lilian Guerra have shown, uh, th- this was not quite the reality, right? The, the Cuban government stance towards commercial sex work changes over time. And initially, the government believes that commercial sex would organically just disappear as the revolution advanced and people's needs were met. Uh, but when it didn't, Authorities saw that as an affront, uh, really an offense to the revolution. And so women suspected of, of selling commercial sex uh, could be interned in labor camps, along with same-gender desiring men. Now, none of that reality was known, as far as I know, to radicals in Curacao or in the diaspora who instead looked to Cuba um Really, is this place holding very divergent meanings? Some leftists see the socialist revolution uh, that unfolded in Cuba, and which they sincerely wanted to have happen in, in Curacao as well, um, as a way to restore national dignity and identity from the dominance of foreign interests. And they believe that that would actually give people the freedom uh, to decide whatever the hell it was they wanted to do with their bodies. So some people see it as totally compatible with selling selling sex if that was what someone wanted to do. But other people say that socialism will eradicate sex work just like it did in Cuba, and they believed that sex work was, you know, the most pernicious form of commodification. So even though Cuba's example means different things to different people, it nevertheless served as this kind of huge inspiration for imagining desire beyond the bounds of capitalism. And I think that's really important. Um, and also divergent from official Cuban paradigms was the fact that Vito, especially, wrote again and again about the revolutionary importance of same gender desire, especially for men. Um, and they they believed that that form of intimacy could be revolutionary precisely because it undermined the teachings of the status quo, especially the church and, and the local government. And that that's a fair, that's not just unique. Um, in contrast in contrast to cuba but also among other leftist movements in the caribbean
1: thank you so much for that it, it's really fascinating to hear um, that explanation in the context of, of groups like veto and um how you know this is that's really a unique case at least from what i know more in the latin america context of um kind of these groups that look towards the cuban revolution but they do kind of adopt the cuban revolution's homophobia at the same time so thank you for that. so moving on um, i'm very curious to hear a bit more about the colonial relationship and because as you've said earlier it's a very unique one uh, between the netherlands and aruba and curacao and how that changed over the course of the 20th century.
0: yeah i'll try i'll try uh, to make this <laughs> As swift as I can. It's a big question. (laughs) It's a big question. (laughs) But, um, you know, a lot of important changes come with the rise of the oil industry. So the incredible wealth that's generated by the oil industry, especially in the kind of lead up and during World War II, generates a lot of optimism on the islands among elites there who begin to feel that, you know, we we really now demand uh, much more autonomy in terms of local governance. And so in 1942, uh, the queen, the Dutch queen announces that when the war ends, there will be changes to the imperial order that's done primarily to try to keep Indonesia from becoming independent. Uh, but it, it means a lot in the Caribbean where people are pressing Dutch authorities to have a greater say in political life. So the first of these big reforms comes in 1948 with the expansion of citizenship. And, and full um, adult uh, suffrage. Um, and so people are participating in, in local elections for the first time, uh, meaning that they can elect governments um, rooted in their islands and the what becomes the kind of capital of the Netherlands Antilles. This is a, con- a six island constellation uh, that is created for the administrative convenience of the Dutch. Um, but not that they can elect parliamentarians in, say, the Netherlands. That That's not how the system works. So they have local elections, but do not elect representatives back in the Netherlands. But that's going to change a little bit later. So in 1954, um, a new constitutional order arrives that basically enshrines these reforms. It names Suriname, the Netherlands, Antilles, with the capital in Curaçao, and the Netherlands as quote-unquote, equal constituent countries of the Kingdom of the Netherlands. Um, and despite that, you know, pretense of equality, the Netherlands is nevertheless charged with certain very important kingdom-wide functions like defense, diplomacy, and good governance. And it's quite vague what the guarantee of good governance mean, and that, that's that been used for various ends. Um So the Netherlands Antilles and Suriname are in charge of their own internal affairs, which includes uh, budgets, quite crucially. So um, this is is a a system of what we could call fragmented or variegated sovereignty that's done by design. Uh, Caribbean leaders like the the visionary Curacao politician Moises Frumencio de Cosa-Gomez see this as a way of, you know, decolonization without national independence of trying to maintain certain aspects of the imperial polity while democratizing their connective ties other people are quite discontent with this arrangement, and that would include, you know, more radical people like the leftists that we're going to see in the 1960s, um, but also people like the what become the very popular uh, populist movement on Aruba, who imagine themselves as distinct from Curaçao, and they're upset that being forced to remain in this Antillean federation um, is denigrating to them. They they view themselves as racially distinct from Curacao, so these were this was like a mestizo populist movement uh, that viewed their their domination by what they perceived as a black capital as a racial offense. Um, and it's important to point out that there was African presence on Aruba. Uh, it does not have the same history of slavery that Curacao does, where Curacao is this extremely important. Um, Uh, depot for the wider Caribbean. Uh, But nevertheless, that gets kind of erased in this uh, framing of the mestizo populist movement. So In part, to separate not from the Netherlands, but actually from Curaçao, there's going to be repeated uh, efforts to try to rethink that constitutional model that takes shape in 1954. And that happens in 1986, when Aruba gains its status apart, or its so-called separate status, and instead forges bilateral ties with the Netherlands. So they leave the state known as the Netherlands Antilles, and they form bilateral ties with the Netherlands. They remain under Dutch sovereignty. Um, I should say, too, that Suriname exits the kingdom in 1975. Um, That's important as well. And and then the Netherlands Antilles itself will fall apart completely by 2010. Like I said, this was a state that existed purely as a matter of administrative convenience Um, and include it included six far flung islands who have a lot of cultural linguistic religious differences. Um, so after 2010, Curaçao becomes an autonomous member state of the kingdom, just like Aruba did, and um, St. Martin does as well. And then the smaller islands, Bonaire, Saba, St. Eustatius, are today uh, overseas municipalities of the Netherlands. So they now uh, actually participate in Dutch national elections. Um, but we need another podcast to talk about the, the, complex, <laughs> the complexities of, of what's happening in the post-2010 moment.
1: It's super interesting. Thank you so much. And you did bring up something that I, I think it's important to point out to the listeners is to, these are, you know, two distinct places. And they're part of the Netherlands and Tilly's, but you know, it's also as um, Chelsea just mentioned, you know, there are differences between Aruba and Curaçao. So thank you so much for that. So as we um, mentioned previously, the oil refining industry, began to decline, uh, particularly from the 1970s onwards in Aruba and Curacao. So during that time, you talk about a substantial migration from the Caribbean to the Netherlands. How are these so called migrants and so called because they were Dutch citizens received in the metropole?
0: Yeah, I think the caveat that you added is so important because um, today in the Netherlands, and for decades, really, there's this discourse that Caribbean Dutch citizens are, are somehow outsiders, but I think that this migration, excuse me, really needs to be regarded as an, an internal migration, right? These are Dutch citizens moving from one polity to one part of the polity to another Um, And it happens for a few reasons. So unlike the kind of limited university student migration that's happening in the 1960s, as the oil industry continues to decline uh, by the 1970s and really accelerating in the 1980s, many more people from from the most vulnerable socioeconomic circumstances are beginning to move. And they're doing so, um, yes, because of the economic situation, uh, which I'll elaborate on in a minute, but also because of um, the the kind of political turbulence and uncertainty happening in the region. So Suriname, as I said, becomes independent in 1975. And that was followed by a a period of pretty intense uh, political instability and military dictatorship, and so Aruba's status apart agreement, their, uh, the agreement that they secured to separate from the Netherlands Antilles, actually had built into it the expectation that they would achieve full independence like Suriname would as well. Um, and so there's some angst happening in the insular territories uh, that independence could sever certain lifelines for people precisely at, at a moment of immense political foreclosure. Um Now, so if that's one reason, another reason is that oil companies themselves are actually actively encouraging migration. I found just astounding records that ExxonMobil says, full-throated and with such tremendous clarity, like part of how we're going to staunch the effects of our sudden retreat is to give people money to relocate to the Netherlands where they will have access to a robust welfare state. Because moving to the European Netherlands was actually the only uh, way for people to um, access, you know, the full economic benefits of their Dutch citizenship, uh, because those the, that social legislation does not span the entire kingdom of the Netherlands. So the retrenchment of oil companies touched all theaters of the economy not just production workers who move but also women and children who are affected by structural adu- adjustment policies after the industry collapses and these were precisely the families that had been you know long been the targets of intervention the so-called single parent families though i would invoke here the wisdom of of Curaçao and feminist sean Henriquez who points out that that term is just so inadequate at capturing the wider networks of friends and maternal kin who participate in in the caring and upbringing of children. But in the Netherlands, people are often they're uprooted from these support networks and they need to be reconstituted anew. Um, And so as... uh, People are, you know, they're appealing to the full rights of their citizenship to try to find housing, job opportunities, and social protections in the Netherlands uh, at a a time of real economic precarity. But the Netherlands, meanwhile, is engulfed in its own energy crisis. Um, The country's exploitation of its natural gas fields was starting to show real signs of trouble. This was the effect of so-called Dutch disease, um, it's a very peculiar term as uh, Fernando Coronil among others has pointed out because that kind of boom and bust cycle is like not, not endemic to the global north in the same way that it is in the global south, right? But nevertheless, the Netherlands was beginning to rethink their that country's very large and expansive social safety net to try to bring down public spending right as people are coming to to the European Netherlands to, to, to make claims on the economic rights of their citizenship. So as many Caribbean Dutch families moved to Europe from the 1970s on, European Dutch administrators are trying at the outset of that migration to calculate the perceived cost of, again, fully Dutch people accessing the rights of their citizenship. So they focus in on the allegedly unique dimensions of Caribbean kinship and they request lots of studies and analyses. They spend a lot of public money, so this is ironic. They spend a lot of public money precisely at a moment when they're trying to cut costs to try to index the way that Caribbean families are interacting with the welfare state. And it's ironic to give this much attention as well to quote unquote single parenthood, because it's also at this very moment in the aftermath of the sexual revolution, when white European Dutch women are also themselves uncoupling marriage and reproduction. So social scientists were commissioned by state and municipal leaders to study Caribbean kinship patterns and to connect um, kinship to welfare reliance. So you see this enormous profusion of scholarship uh, designed to uh, provide uh, an accounting of the way that Caribbean families used welfare. And I argue that that becomes extremely uh, de- harmful in subsequent decades.
1: Thank you so much. You you answered my next question for me. Um, these studies are obviously a big part of the book and they're really interesting to, to read about and, and hear about, so... Um, thank you so much for that. So obviously, you know, you have spent a lot of time in all of the places mentioned in this book, it seems like so and you have these really, really beautiful um anecdotes um, in the introduction and the conclusion a bit about kind of legacies of, of this time. So in your view, what are the legacies that you see from, from this narrative in modern day Aruba and Curaçao, as well as among diaspor- diasporic communities in the Netherlands? Yeah, this is a, a great question. And, um, you know, returning to this concept of the
0: offshore that I just found really generative to, to think through when I was writing the book, I, I think that one stark fact that this book reveals is that oil industries were not meant for local enrichment. These were industries uh, that built on long-standing extractivist economies in the Caribbean They that were designed to pull wealth and resources away from the islands and toward global headquarters in Europe and the United States. And they operate through these fungible forms of sovereignty under colonial governance and, of course, enduring Dutch sovereignty, uh, which permitted all kinds of really profitable loopholes like the, the scholar, The anthropologist Hannah Appel says it takes sovereignty to abdicate sovereignty. So it actually takes a sovereign state like the Netherlands to carve out its zones of exception, right? And so today you have extremely powerful and ascendant right-wing and also centrist liberal politicians in the Netherlands who lament their ongoing relationship with the Caribbean and who frequently say, you know, like the party that was just elected had has made it part of their election platform. We want independence for the Netherlands. They claim that the island, uh, the islands are a financial drain and they repeatedly try to limit the migration of people who are, again, Dutch citizens from the Caribbean. But this is a really disingenuous and dishonest argument. I mean, it's it's a patently racist way of qualifying the citizenship of people whose ancestors created wealth for the Dutch state or Dutch companies. And it's a view that really doesn't take into account the way that Dutch wealth and energy sovereignty were consolidated through ventures in the Caribbean, including the incredibly lucrative and important oil refining industries there, which exploited Dutch law to generate profits. Now, at the same time, you know, Caribbean populations have been unevenly made to pay the price for that. And um, as I said, you know, there is a real sense of nostalgia, especially among an older generation, for these plants in the Caribbean today. And there were even some efforts to try to revive them as tourism took a hit during the COVID-19 pandemic. And it's, it's easy to see why, right? Waged industrial labor and the social benefits that companies provided many decades ago look so generous and comprehensive compared to the neoliberal tourist economies that replaced oil, right? But I think that this framework gives us, the the framework of the offshore that is, gives us the opportunity to see how the benefits of these industries are are rarely permanent and they rarely accrue in in the societies where they're established. And instead, they, they unevenly expose people to exploitation and and toxicity, while making it appear as though this is somehow the deficiency, this is the product of the deficiency of the so-called third world, and not a deliberate corporate practice that was designed to enrich companies rooted in the global north. So the Caribbean islands that are part of the kingdoms of, of the Netherlands today are much more vulnerable to the conditions of a warming planet, and yet they have fewer resources to address those realities, in part because they are, you know, unevenly knit into Dutch sovereignty. They're excluded from major climate agreements and the funding that comes with it. So there's a lot of clever activism happening now to redress those inequalities, including a lawsuit that was just launched like two days ago by the island of Bonaire against the Netherlands to ex- to try to address the the existential threat that that island faces as a, a low-lying Caribbean island. And I direct listeners as well to the, the uh, creative work of the Islanders at the Helm project too.
1: Thank you so much. I'm definitely checking that out. Um, so usually at the end, I always like to give our authors space to, to tell us a little bit about what they're currently working on. So if there are any current projects you have that you'd like to share, we'd love to hear about them.
0: Well, this is a very stressful question (laughs) because, you know, for the better part of a decade, you have like a really firm grasp on, on what it is you're doing. But, um, so I, I mean, I'm joking. The focus on <laughs> on oil refining in the Caribbean uh, definitely got me interested in other aspects of the region's energy system, uh, specifically the the electrical systems that are quite globally distinct for their reliance on oil-fired generation, which has led to exorbitant and volatile energy costs and also aging infrastructure that's built and maintained by foreign entities. So I am now working on a social, technical, and environmental history of electrification in the region from the kind of earliest electrical experiments in the late 19th century up through the the climate and debt crises that uh, are very much dominating Conversations about electricity today. So I hope that this will be a wider portrait that that involves, but also exceeds uh, the territories uh, that that we call the Dutch Caribbean.
1: Well, I think I speak for all the listeners when we say that when I say that we're looking forward to to seeing the fruits of that project. So thank you, thank you so much. This has been um, D- Dr. Chelsea Shields uh, presenting her book. Offshore Attachments, Oil and Intimacy in the Caribbean, released last year from the University of California Press, which is where you can also purchase the book. Thank you so much, Chelsea. Thank you.